If you have your Bibles with you, if you would turn with me to Psalm 22. Scripture reading for this morning is Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18, which is a long reading. Um, But I can promise you my sermon will be longer, uh, and this is God's word. Uh, and my sermon will be about God's word. So hear this. If you hear anything, hear this, because this is God's word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and they wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I was poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue cleaves to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death. For the dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. God, I pray that you would teach us from this section of your word and from others in your word this morning. God, I pray by your grace and your mercy, you would speak to your sons and daughters through me. Um, God, I pray that you would guard uh, the thoughts uh, 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 and, and the words of my mouth and the intentions and thoughts of my heart. God, I pray that this teaching time would bring glory and honor to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 22 is one of three psalms, Psalm 22, 23, and 24, which are a messianic trilogy of psalms. They are prophecies about the coming Messiah. And Psalm 22 is about this suffering Messiah. And then Psalm 23, the The shepherd psalm is about the shepherd Messiah, and then Psalm 24 is about the the sovereign, victorious king Messiah. And here in Psalm 22, this psalm describes in great detail Jesus' crucifixion. And it's important to realize that when David wrote this psalm, he wrote this psalm 
five to six hundred years before crucifixion was even a thing. And yet David as a prophet writes prophecy about a type of execution that did not even exist when he was writing. The importance of these Psalm 22 prophecies. In the book of Acts, we're told, uh, and we get the, the title of today's sermon by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' death, as horrible as it was for those around them to see, was part of God's predetermined plan. In Mark 14, verse 36, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, and he is praying to his Father, And he actually prays to the Father, take this cup from me. Take this cup of suffering from me. And then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, God the Son, was saying his death, his cup of suffering, was the will of the Father. In Matthew 20, uh, as Jesus and his disciples are on uh, their way to Jerusalem for that final Passover that Jesus was, uh, was going where he was going to be crucified. He pulls his disciples aside and he foretold to them with great detail his suffering and his death. And the reason for that was so that when those horrible things happened, his disciples would be encouraged that, that this is not defeat, this is not the end of our hopes and our dreams, but this is victory. This is God's plan. So even as he was facing a horrible death, he wants to strengthen his disciples and their faith. So he wants his followers to know that, that Psalm 22 applies to him. He wants his, his, his disciples, he wants us today to be encouraged that the details of Psalm 22 are about him. And so what he does, it seems, is he makes sure they understand that by making sure they understand that Psalm 23 is about him and that Psalm 24 is about him. Psalm 23. uh, I've been to several funerals in the last two weeks. And the 23rd Psalm has been recited or read at every single one of them. Uh, the 23rd Psalm, probably the, the best known, maybe the best loved of the Psalms, a source of great comfort and encouragement, especially in grief. Uh, again, at, at funerals, especially at gravesides. And, and, and Jesus makes sure that his followers understand that that Psalm 23 is about him. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, 
And I give eternal life to them, and, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that he is the good shepherd. So what does he do? In Mark 6, he lives out the 23rd Psalm. In Mark 6, Jesus takes his disciples aside, and the context here, his disciples are exhausted. They've been on a missionary journey. Jesus has sent them out, and they got to preach, and they got to heal, and they got to cast out demons, and, they got to, and then they come back, and they're all excited, and, and, the, and the adrenaline's pumping, and then they hear that John the Baptist has been executed, uh, and, and there's a time of great excitement and a time of great sorrow, and the crowds that were coming were such that there were so many people. What a great problem to have. There were so many people coming that Jesus could not stop teaching or did not stop teaching, and all the disciples were doing was kind of keeping crowd control, and there were so many people coming that they did not have time to take time to eat or to sleep. And after however many days of that, Jesus, the good shepherd, knowing that his sheep were suffering, Jesus says to his disciples in, in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, Come aside, come aside to a secluded place that we can rest for a while. And so he, he takes his disciples he recognizes their need and he calls them to a time of rest. But in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, a large crowd got there before them. I don't know if you've ever been looking forward to rest and, and, and just kept telling yourself, if I can just, I don't know if you've ever been on a long trip. When, we, when my family drives, and I think it's because I'm a control freak, but I'd say it's because I get motion sick, but I drive. I drive, nobody else in the family drives, everybody in my family can drive, but no one can drive as good as me, and so I drive. And myself, sleepy, myself falling asleep, nodding off and falling asleep is safer than any of my family members driving, and so I drive. Uh, and, I can, and I can just tell myself, hey, we're going we're gonna to make it, we're going to make it, and I, you know, I pull my eyes up or whatever, and I pull the hair out of my arm, which I've done multiple times, and I stay awake till I get home because then I can, then I can rest, then I can sleep, then I can, then I can just crash for however long it is, except when it's not. And we get home, and, and, and the last two times we've gotten home from a long trip, there's been a welcome committee there, and there's been my extended family was there. And I'll be honest with you, I did not want to see them. And, and, and I wanted to get away from them, and, and, to get, and, and that's exactly what Jesus does not do here. Jesus sees this huge crowd of people that have gotten to the secluded place where they were going to rest ahead of them. And we're told that, that Jesus, in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus felt compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. He sees this crowd and he realizes that they are sheep without a shepherd. Now, the, the early readers of Mark would have known what, what saying that somebody is a sheep would mean. You know, we, we, we recite the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, if the Lord is my shepherd, this is class participation. I'm used to teaching in high school where kids have to answer. If the Lord is my shepherd, I am his... Look at y'all. 
And I'm proud to be God's sheep. Let's talk about sheep. Sheep are dependent. Sheep are unintelligent. It's a possibility that sheep are the stupidest domesticated animals of all time. Sheep do not know what to be scared of. They are terrified of shadows. If a cloud goes across the the, the sun and a shadow goes across the land and happens to hit a flock of sheep, they will scatter in all directions because the shadow hit them. They are not scared of cliffs. They are not scared of wolves. A wolf comes in amongst the sheep, and the sheep are like, wow, that's a strange-looking sheep. Oh, he's eating Betty. And, they, and, they, and they, they will stand there and let, them all, let themselves all be eaten because they are too stupid to know the difference between what you should and shouldn't be afraid of. Sheep are prone to wander. Sheep cannot find their way back to the shepherd if the shepherd's standing in plain sight. Sheep are defenseless. Their bite is more like getting gummed. They drowned easily. A sheep will walk into a stream one inch deep. If the water is moving, the sheep every single time by his stupid nature will turn upstream and stick his little head down in the water to drink. And while he's sucking water up into his mouth, water will go up his nose and he'll stand in one inch of water and drown. Which is why Psalm 23 says, my good shepherd leads me beside quiet waters. Because of unintelligent prone to wander, can't find their way back to the sheep, somewhat defenseless, not very smart. I know a lot of sheep like that, including myself. And Jesus knows his sheep, and so he begins to shepherd them, and he teaches them in Mark chapter 6. And he teaches them until, in in chapter 6, verse 35, it says it was quite late, and darkness was falling, and the shadows were there, and the sheep become concerned, and Jesus commands his under-shepherds to feed the sheep. And the under-shepherds, the disciples, do the exact opposite of a good shepherd, and they say, send these sheep away. Send these people away that they might find food for themselves. A shepherd never sends the sheep to fend for themselves. So what does Jesus do? He does what the good shepherd does, and he commands them to sit down. And when he commands them to sit down, not surprising, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only one of Jesus' miracles other than the resurrection that's, that's mentioned in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000 impressed these guys. And Jesus commands them to sit down, and both John and Mark tell us that there was much green grass in that particular area. And they all reclined in the green grass. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And then Jesus fed them. And I grew up in a, in a church uh, uh, that was a different denomination than, than anything close to Presbyterian. And every time we heard about the feeding of the 5,000, it was a story about sharing. Because one little boy had his lunch, and, 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 and it's, 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 a, it's a lesson about sharing. You know, it's not a lesson about sharing. Jesus took his lunch. It's a lesson about Jesus stealing. But Jesus takes his lunch, and Jesus takes that one little boy's lunch, and Jesus feeds them, and it says they, they ate until they were stuffed and could not eat anymore. And then they gathered up 12 large baskets uh, of leftovers. And for people that only eat one meal a day, 
Not because they're trying to lose weight, not because they're into intermittent fasting, but because that was all they had. Whatever time of the day you eat, you call it break fast because you haven't eaten for 24, and suddenly they are full. What a great shepherd. My cup overflows. Jesus wants to make sure that we understand that Psalm 23 is about him. Psalm 24 is about him. In Psalm 24, hang with me, I don't know if you've ever been in a sermon, I know you have, where you realize there's a couple more points coming. Just hang in here, okay? In fact, if anything, this is, Psalm 24 was written by David. And it's the, the historical context is 2 Samuel 6, and they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant, the physical presence of God, into Jerusalem. Now, they've already, they've already tried bringing it into Jerusalem earlier, and, they, and they, in a disrespectful manner, they moved the Ark like the Philistines had moved the Ark on the back of an ox cart. And when the ox cart, uh, the oxen stumbled and the cart almost over, uh, overturned, uh, a, a man named Uzzah holds his hand out and he keeps the, the ark. And God, the anger of God burned against him for touching the ark and God struck him dead. And David was rightfully afraid and so they stick the ark somewhere uh, and, and David's afraid of the physical presence of God. And and, and, and God blessed the house of Odom Edom where the ark was being was being stored. And finally, David hears that, that, that the ark is bringing blessing. And so David wants to bring the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem. And he's learned his lesson. And they go and they get the ark and the priests are carrying the ark like they're supposed to. And it's, the Bible says they took six steps, six steps and stopped and they offered an entire worship service and, and offered sacrifices. And then they picked the ark up and took six steps and they put it back down and had an entire worship service and sacrifices. And they picked it back up. And I don't know how many miles they had to go, but that's a lot of sacrifice. And a lot of singing. And there was this entourage and there's this huge worship service as they're coming into Jerusalem. And as was the custom, Dr. Long, I know you're paying attention. What do you call it in choir when... Somebody sings and somebody answers and somebody sings and somebody answers. I don't know what that's called. Antiphonal. What was that called? Antiphonal. I didn't know that. Okay, I don't, that, that, so that's what they're having. What was it called? Antithical. Antithical. Yeah, that's what I thought. And, and so, as, as is, so as they're coming in to, as they're coming into Jerusalem in Psalm 24, the, the entourage yells out, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So the, the folks outside the city are yelling, open up the gates, that the king of glory. Now the, the choir, the folks up on the walls, they answer back, and they yell back, who is this king of glory? And then the folks outside yell, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then this group outside yells again, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then the guys up here, they get to do their part. And they yell back, who is this king of glory? And then the guys out here yell, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. It's a, this triumphal entry of the physical presence of God coming into Jerusalem. By God's sovereign grace to his people, the Jews sang a particular psalm each day of the week all through the temple services for that day. Every Sunday, what we would now call Sunday, every Sunday they sang Psalm 24. 
all through the worship of that day. On Monday, they sang Psalm 48. Tuesday, Psalm 82. Wednesday, Psalm 94. Thursday, they did Psalm 81. Friday, they did Psalm 93. Saturday, they did Psalm 92. On Sundays, they sang Psalm 24 repeatedly all the way through the day of worship in the temple. Therefore, on the Sunday that we call Palm Sunday... Matthew 21, Jesus coming off the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey's coat next to a donkey, entering the east gate right next to the temple. There's a crowd with Jesus, an entourage with Jesus as he comes in, and they're yelling, Hosanna, God save, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Somewhere within 100 feet of that is a temple service going on. And the worship leaders are yelling, open the gates that the king of glory can come in. And then the priests are yelling, who is this king of glory? And the priests are yelling back, the Lord of hosts is the king. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, folks that did not even recognize him as who he was were yelling, open the gates that the king of glory, the victorious, mighty, conquering king, the sovereign Lord of hosts can come in. The physical presence of God can come into Jerusalem. So Psalm 24 is about Jesus, and Psalm 23 is about Jesus. Now don't be scared. I'm only going to look at two verses in Psalm 22. Jesus wants to make sure that Jesus' followers, his sons and daughters, his, his disciples, you and I, understand that Psalm 22 is about him. So six hours into his crucifixion, as he has been hanging on the cross for six hours, the horror of the crucifixion finally reaches its climbing. The Bible says Jesus did not cry out. When they, when they pulled out his beard, when they, when they beat him until you couldn't recognize him, when they put a, craw, a crown of thorns on his head, he didn't, he didn't cry. When they crucified him, he didn't speak. But at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, after six hours on the cross, and in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, Jesus cries out, and he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God had forsaken him. Because God is holy. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus, who knew no sin, had become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that Psalm 22 is about him. Why? Because down in, in, in verse 6, he, it, it, the, the psalmist makes a statement that doesn't even, it doesn't seem to, I am a worm and not a man. I am a worm. The Hebrew word there is I'm, I'm a tola. It's a crimson worm. The word tola, the Hebrew word tola, is 48 times in the Old Testament. 42 of those times it's translated into English red. Only six times is it translated worm. The tola is a particular kind of worm. When Jesus, when Jesus says Psalm 22 is about me. He's saying to his people, to his disciples, to his followers, to you and I, he is a tola. The tola worm, when it was time for the tola worm to give birth, the tola worm would attach herself to an oak tree, the trunk of an oak tree. The Romans made their crosses 
out of oak. The tola would attach herself to an oak tree and she would lay her eggs under her body. She would give birth and then she would die. So that when her eggs would hatch, she would be right there so they could eat her body and be nourished. And as they ate of her, a red dye would come out and would dribble down the trunk and would stain the tree. And the red dye would come over each of her newborn and they would be stained for life. The tola stain was highly prized. It was deep red, almost black. It was so red. It was used in the in the, the staining, the dyeing of the, of, the, of the fabric in the tabernacle and in the temple, it was used to stain and dye the, the robes of the worshipers of God when they came into the temple. It was used by the Romans. It was a permanent, unremovable stain. It was used when a criminal that had been convicted was pardoned. When a criminal was awaiting its, his sentence, he would be in a cell. And there, his, his crime, his conviction, and his sentence would be on a sign above the, uh, the cell. And if they took him out to execute him, they would hang that sign over the cross so that everyone would know why he was being executed. If, however, a criminal was pardoned by a Roman official, that pardon was absolute, and so they would cover over the crime and the guilt and the sentence with tola stain, so that that guilt and that crime and that sentence could never be seen again. Jesus wants us to make sure we understand that when, when Psalm 22 verse 6 says, I am a tola, that was Jesus saying, I will die so that my children can live. I will stain you with my blood so that you will be marked as mine and your sentence and your guilt and and your crime will never, ever, ever be brought up again. What a savior, shepherd, sovereign, and a worm for us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. God, I thank you for the, the, the greatness of your salvation. And God, I thank you that we worship a God that is worthy of our worship. So much beyond worthy of our worship. God, we thank you that, uh, that you, God the Son, you are the sovereign king. You are the great shepherd. And you are the one that suffered on our behalf. And as we now as we now celebrate the Lord's Supper, what your death has accomplished for us, I pray that you would strengthen and encourage your sons and daughters here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.